Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest edition of For What It's Worth podcast. I just loaded up a new set of rechargeable batteries. I might just pull a Fidel Castro here and just go for seven hours, nine hours straight. Um, typically, I would do this in an airplane hangar, but now I'm here in Santa Fe. And for those of you Americans who don't know Fidel Castro, he was a Republican senator from Iowa, just in case you didn't know. Uh, by the way, when I do these podcasts and when I do my videos, you're going to hear me doing this a lot. Smacking my lips or dealing with the saliva, or in my case, lack of saliva in my mouth. The reason for that, and, some, and the reason I'm bringing this up now is somebody wrote on YouTube and said, hey, you should stop doing that or gave me a suggestion on how to get around it. The problem I have is I have Lyme. I got Lyme disease. And uh, I had to take antibiotics for two years. I took three antibiotics twice a day for two years. Just think about that. Most of you, when you take an antibiotic, could be anywhere from three to five days. At the, at the wide set, you might have taken an antibiotic for two weeks. I took three twice a day for two years, multiple antibiotic treatment for Lyme, trying to kill cell, cell, cell wall, and cyst bacteria versions of the, of the bacteria. And it completely, when they gave me the antibiotics, they said, this is going to hurt you in some ways, uh, your intestinal tract and your mouth. You're going to, your mouth is going to, all of the good bacteria in your body is going to get killed and your mouth is going to take a beating. And that's the case. So my mouth does not produce saliva like yours does. And consequently, I have to constantly keep re-wetting the inside of my mouth. I sleep at night with a giant thing of water next to the bed. I have to wake up all night long and drink. So that's probably going to be that way the rest of my life. I don't really know any way around it, but that's why I make that noise in case you're wondering. So we have an amazing 11 points this week. I mean, they're good. These are so good. You're probably going to want me to start a Patreon site so that you can give lots of money, give like at communion. That tray comes around. I want to see big bills, baby. I don't want to see any any small bills. I want big, untraceable bills because the church needs it. The Church of Milner here in New Mexico. Okay, who is this podcast for? If you're new here, you're like, this guy's an idiot. Why would I listen to this? Well, if you're someone who was showered at the car wash, if you needed a good wash and you chose the high-powered hose at the car wash, then welcome aboard. This podcast is for you. I've been there. We've all been there. By the way, if you haven't seen the movie Fandango with Kevin Costner from the 1980s, Speaking of car wash showers, that is a wonderful movie. It has a great cast. It's a great story. It's very simple, and it has inspired so many road trips and skydiving expeditions. I do not know. I've lost count. Okay, the hero of the week is any high school senior or college senior who is about to graduate because holy cow are these people behind the eight ball. If you thought 2008 was bad, getting out of school and landing in the middle of a financial collapse— that we should have all seen coming that basically enriched the 1% even more. Yes, I won't, I won't digress. But um, getting out now in the middle of a pandemic is going to be a very challenging scenario. So if there's a way to reach out to any of these people on your street, in your neighborhood, or online, I would suggest doing so. Because most of the people that are listening to this podcast are older, right? So we're, I'm in my 50s. You're maybe in the same age range. We probably know some things that might help. Uh, kids coming out of high school or college because, man, it's going to be rough. All right, I've got a new, new part of this that I want to... Uh, I've got a new section of the, of the podcast. We start with who the podcast is for, then we go to a hero, and then, now I'm going to start with a question of the week, or however often I can do these podcasts. Sometimes there are multiples a week, and other times I go for weeks and don't do one, but I'm going to have a question at the beginning before we get to the, the points that I want to talk about. The question of this week is, how many people have to suffer or be destroyed for us to create one ultra-wealthy person. You could say millionaire, but that doesn't even count anymore because there's so many billionaires running around the planet. Just in the tech space alone in San Francisco, imagine how many billionaires there are. But I'll bring tech back up again. So, and I don't have their names listed in here, but let me, let me rephrase the question. How many people have to, be, have to suffer or be destroyed for the world to create one ultra-wealthy person? I think that is a very interesting question. If you think about Trump, the Waltons, who are the founders of Walmart, they're the single richest non-royal family in the world. The Koch brothers, Harvey Weinstein, throw Barack Obama in there. I don't think he's at the level of wealth that a lot of these other people are. Vladimir Putin, we know what kind of guy he is, sociopathics, killed Russian uh, civilians on 
foreign territory and gotten away with it. The guy's crazy. He's also apparently, according to the Panama Papers and the Paradise Papers, he's embezzled literally billions of dollars from the Russian uh, population. And I'm throwing someone else under the bus here, Gwyneth Paltrow. I don't know anything about Gwyneth Paltrow, but she's representative to me of the celebrity culture. And if and you can also throw Harvey Weinstein in here and how many lives, careers, people, and souls that person crushed over the years to get where he is. This is this is interesting to me. Now, for you Trumpers out there, and let me just say this. I have friends who are Trump supporters. I have immediate family members who are Trump supporters. I know a lot of people who are Republicans. I try to talk to everyone. I try to get along with everyone. I try to understand perspective. For a lot of Trumpers out there, me even asking this question will reek of socialism, but that's okay. I have a suggestion. Look up the actual definition of socialism and stop allowing the dumbest human being to ever walk the earth to supply a definition for you. That would be my only suggestion in regards to socialism. But I think my point here is with the question is if you look around at somebody like Trump or the Koch brothers or the Waltons or Putin or whoever, to, for one person to get to become a millionaire slash billionaire, a lot of people get destroyed. A lot of people get crushed. And I'm just asking, how many do you think it is? Is it in the hundreds? Is it in the thousands? Is it tens of thousands? Is it hundreds of thousands? If you look at, let's just take Walmart, for example, how many stores are around the world? How many people do they employ? I think it's a little over 2 million people worldwide. Apparently, there's a new Walmart being built in Mexico, in Mexico, like every 30 days. It's some insane number like that. And <clears throat> yes, you're employing. But what's happening behind the scenes, what's happening with the people where the, the predominant goods are being manufactured, whether that's China or some other country that is producing this sort of inexpensive, cheap goods that Walmart sells. Uh, it's a question that I cannot answer, but it one that it's one that intrigues me. Okay, moving on. We have 11 points, and I don't want to. I don't want to go over seven hours here because I don't want to. I don't want to basically show up Castro. By the way, when I brought up Castro's name, I once pitched a, a photo project to a, a newspaper editor. And it was to follow a caravan of people from Phoenix driving down through Tampico, Mexico, where they picked up a plane and they would fly into Havana to deliver relief supplies. This was back in the early 90s. And I remember the photo editor said, there's no Cubans in the valley. Well, it turns out Phoenix had the second largest population of Cubans in the United States outside of Miami, and, and no one knew except me and the Cubans. And so they were like, this is a dumb story. Nobody's interested. So I didn't go. But what happened is... They drove to Tampico, they got on a plane, they flew to Cuba, and who met him at the airport? I kid you not, Fidel Castro, and took this little group of people into an airplane hangar and spoke for seven hours straight. They were captive, they were hostages listening to this talk in Spanish with a translator, uh, and I could have been there, and I didn't get to go, and I'm still pissed about it. Okay, point number one. I don't know how I found this, and that's the beauty of YouTube, is your brain shuts off. And you find yourself like pantless with a, a bowl of broccoli watching YouTube films about God knows what. And I found this, this YouTube clip about Dick Cavett and Dick Van Dyke. Now, for those of you who don't know, Dick Cavett was a talk show, a television talk show host, a very good one and a very well-respected one. And Dick Van Dyke was a television celebrity that had a variety of different shows over the years. And he also had a super savage beard. If you haven't seen how this beard was this trim, this Van Dyke beard was just insane. But anyway, there I see it. And I'm like, I haven't seen Dick Cavett in 30 years. So I'm like, oh, this will be interesting. And, and I'm, what else do I have to do besides watch a 900-minute long interview? Well, so there are two points about this I want to make, duration and honesty. So what I found myself doing was immediately comparing the Dick Cavett-style interview to what's on modern television, let's say right before the pandemic. So if you had all the nightly talk shows where Conan O'Brien or whoever and their guest and how they conduct an interview today and the quality of that interview and the duration of the interview and the honesty of the interview. And all I'll tell you is the interview between Dick Cavett and Dick Van Dyke was probably, I'm not joking, a hundred times longer than the average nightly interview now. A hundred times. They I think it was 90 minutes of just the two of them talking. And the honesty of what they spoke about. Now, I don't know anything about Dick Cabot, and I certainly don't know anything about Dick Van Dyke. I remember as a little kid, I remember those names. But the questioning was merciless. He wasn't trying to be mean. He was just honest. And it turns out Dick Van Dyke was an is an alcoholic, and his wife was too. Now, imagine you coming onto a program today 
and being an alcoholic and a host being able to honestly ask you questions about your alcoholism in the middle of a television interview on a nightly te- whether it's Saturday Night Live or it's uh, Conan or whoever, Jimmy Kimmel, we don't do it anymore because so much of what we do is phony. It's fake. It's, it's to promote and sell, right? There's hardly any of that legitimate conversation. And even if there was a, a brief touching on alcoholism, they would have skirted around it. They would have put humor in. Dick Cavett was, was relentless. I just I was cringing every time he asked a question. And to his credit, Dick Van Dyke was, in, was completely forthcoming. He said, I didn't, you know, I was in denial. I didn't think I had a drinking problem because I, and, and Dick, Dick Cavett goes, were you drunk at work? Like, tell me something that we can look at that you were drunk. And he goes, no, I never drank at work. He said, that was one of the problems was I only drank at night. And I said to myself, I'm not a drunk because I don't have to get up in the morning and have a drink. And the, he just kept diving in. What about your wife? Oh, and, and Dick Van Dyke was like, yeah, she's an alcoholic too. We were enabling each other and blah, blah, blah. And I just sat there after like 15 minutes and I was like, holy cow. And I think it's representative of our culture and society in general. And with, if you look at what's happening with the pandemic and the misinformation and Cambridge Analytica and everyone just sort of fabricating whatever it is they want to do, we've gotten away from t- those two things, duration and honesty, where it's hard for anyone to have a long conversation because our attention spans are so splintered and fractured. And, and it's very, very uncommon to run into people who are, are painfully honest. Um, especially when you're in a public space like that. And man, would I love us to get back to that. How fantastic would it be to have television interviews like that, that go for 90 minutes? I guess Howard Stern would be the closest thing that we have. And yes, there's a little bit over the top. Yes, there's comedy involved. But Howard will interview a person for hours and ask them all the things that you and I as civilians would, we want to ask all celebrities, but nobody else does because they're afraid. And you know when you go on Howard that there are no rules, right? Everything is on the table. If you've done something horrible, they're going to talk about it. Um, I did see the intro for the first five seconds of a new 30 30 by 30 film from ESPN called Lance, which is about Lance Armstrong, um, fascinating character in the history of the cycling world, et cetera. We're all familiar with him. But the interviewer, apparently, when she sat down with a half a dozen cyclists to do interviews, the first question she said to them was, when's the first time you doped? And they all just went, oh, my God, I can't believe you started with that. But come on, that's what everybody wants to know. So I hope we get back to duration and honesty. Number two, point number two, turn your phone off at night. I'm, I'm so amazed by how many people not only don't turn their phone off, but they leave it next to their bed. That is maybe, that's one of the dumbest things you could possibly do. Do you realize the kind of radiation that's coming out of that phone, number one? And number two, if you're answering your phone in the middle of the night, you got a problem. Let's go back to Dick Van Dyke saying, yeah, I was an alcoholic. I am an alcoholic. I will always be an alcoholic. If your phone is on at night next to your bed, what are you thinking? And by the way, don't give me the I need the alarm thing. Just get a little little $2 alarm clock at the, at the drugstore, and you'll be much better off and much happier. Please turn your phone off at night. It's, I, I can't believe I have to say that. Okay, this point, number three, I think is fantastic. I've been thinking about this every single day when I'm riding and hiking. I've been grinding over this in my head for weeks. I don't have an answer to this. I think it's a, I'm posing a question, and I'm going to provide an answer through two different things, uh, photography books and cycling. And my question is, what is good? Okay, what is, what is good, and what is the difference between good and avid? Okay, and I think this is really important for our culture, especially if you're in photography, if you're online. So the definition of good will change based on your audience, right? And I'm going to give you two examples of this. So let's start with cycling. Oftentimes people will say to me, oh my God, you're, you know, I ride all the time. I rode 22 miles this morning, which is nothing, but I am at 7,000 feet. I probably rode 1,000 feet of climbing. I probably burned maybe 12, 1,300 calories. It's a pretty simple ride. I can do that kind of ride in my sleep now. And people will say, you know, I'll talk to them about cycling and bikes and they'll, and they'll kind of get shy and they'll say, well, you're a great cyclist, but I'm not. And that's kind of an excuse for them to not get on a bike, even though they're maybe hinting that they would love to reconnect with the bike, but they go, but you're a great cyclist. And the truth is I'm not a great cyclist. I'm not even a good cyclist. What I am is an avid cyclist. Okay. There's a huge difference. A great cyclist, Lance Armstrong, right? Uh, Gert Jan Tunisa, for those of you cycling freaks out there, he was the guy that was my 
He was the one I had the man crush on back in the 80s with his ponytail and his girlfriend would light candles for him. And he was like a shaman that was a professional bike racer, Gert Jan Tanisa. Um, amazing dude. That's a great cyclist, right? A good cyclist would be my brother. My brother can get on a bike with no food and no training and rip a 100-mile ride and, and have a Coke at mile 50 and then ride another 50 miles. He's a good cyclist. He's not a great cyclist. If my brother went to Europe and raced in the, in the Peloton, he'd get smoked and would get dropped and probably wouldn't finish the race, right? And he does Ironman, so he's a damn good cyclist, but he's not great. He's really good. I am avid. I'm not nowhere near great. I'm not good. I know people who, with no training, like I said, can get on a bike and, and, and gut out a 100-mile ride. For me, I'd be devastated for a week afterwards. I have to plan. I have to eat every 20 minutes on the bike or my body starts to fail. You know, my legs are the size of toothpicks. My father used to m relentlessly make fun of me because the more I cycled, the skinnier my legs got. And my father had these just muscular, ripped. My dad's calves were as big as my thighs. I'm not kidding you. It was just a freak because nobody else in the family has these. My brother doesn't. I don't. My sister doesn't. My dad's calves were like legendary. And so I'm not good. I'm avid. The second thing I'm going to say is this applies to photography as well. What's considered good, especially in the online or the film hipster world or whatever, 99% of the time it's not. But it's good to the audience that's insatiably tied to that work because they don't know what's good. They haven't seen what's good. They're easily misguided, and they're basically followers. And so they're like, oh, this guy has a ton of traffic. This must be good. So I'll give you an example. I saw two $60 photography books, two books, same price, $60, one of which was not a book. It was a portfolio. There was no copy, no story. The design of the book could have been done in Lightroom with the blurb book module. It was incredibly basic. It was not a book. It was a portfolio. There's a huge difference between a book, which has a narrative, a story arc, copy, design, you know, potentially transitional images, great images. A book is a whole different thing than a portfolio. A lot of people, especially in the online space, they don't know the difference. They'll put something out and say, I just did this book, and I take one look at it, and I'm like, that's a portfolio. It's not a book whatever, but two $60 books, one of which was just not impressive at all. It's good that the photographer did the book. The book forces you to make decisions about your work. The photographer went out and created enough work to do a book. There's a lot of positive to take away, but within 10 seconds of looking at the thumbnails, I was like, this is not a very impressive thing, and wow, it's $60. That's kind of on the high end for a lot of, of photography. You can get a good photography book for 15 bucks, and this was 60 then I saw a second $60 book from uh, another organization, and I was so completely blown away by how good this was. Not only was the story itself that the photographer had chosen to do a remarkably intelligent line, but the time required and the time committed by the photographer to do it, which was, a, was not only in terms of length of time that it took to do it, but length of geography the photographer had to follow. So she started in one location and she ended in another, and it is a long, long way, like thousands of miles, and did this remarkable book. And then I looked at the designer, and the designer is someone I know, someone that I've interviewed, and they're fantastic. And I looked at the book quality of materials. I looked at how it was produced. I looked at the everything about it, the size, the materials, the print run, the designer, and I was like, that is a $60, that is a, one, that is a great photography book. The second one, it was kind of a hipstery book. It just was, if you know, and th this is my point, if you know, then your definition of good is going to change, right? And so they say ignorance is bliss. If you don't know, you may look and say, wow, like, hey, I just bought a 1984 Pinto. I've heard that this is an amazing car. Well, for those of us who are around, you're like, okay, you bought a Pinto. I hope you don't get rear-ended because it's probably going to explode, right? We know because we've been around and we know that the Pinto is probably not the car that you want to buy. You want an AMC Pacer. That's the car that you want because we know that's the pinnacle of automotive genius that we've ever had. Or the Chevy Nova, which in Spanish means no-go, and that was the car that Chevy tried to sell in Latin America, apparently did not go over so well. But again, the definition of good, I'm not a good cyclist. I am an avid cyclist. I'm not a good bookmaker. I am an avid bookmaker. The only I've made one book that I think by myself that I think, wow, this is actually pretty good. The only other books I've made that I would say are good 
bordering on great are books that I've done with other people who are much more talented than me, editors, designers, other photographers, etc. Those have the, the chance of being great. I'm just avid. I just love doing it. I'm going to make a film later today where I sit down on the Blurb software and design something that I don't even want to print. I just love the I, the puzzle of putting it together and saying, can I make a spread that, that's effective? So think about that. Good and great. If, you're, if your experience is limited, if your knowledge is limited, if you're looking at photography on YouTube all day and you've never been on a site like PhotoEye Bookstore, then you probably have a very limited knowledge of what's good and what's great. So that's all I'm saying is, is, is expand. Okay, point number four is about air travel uh, and traveling for sport. And this is one thing that I really hope changes post-pandemic, or even now, because I don't know when post is going to be, but it's looking further and further away. But post-pandemic, or God knows when we can get back on planes again— Prior to the pandemic, air travel had become so sporty. You know, it's how many people have I talked to, known, or seen online that are like, oh, I went to uh, South Africa for, for 12 hours and flew back. And then I went through, oh, and they'll show like themselves on an airport with their laptop, nomadic culture. We were traveling frivolously for way too long and way too much. There's absolutely no reason to fly somewhere for 12 hours, right? That's just, it's, it's wrong. It's like when you see these uh, 30-somethings and they'll put on their website, I've been to 100 countries before I was 30 years old. Really? Great. What'd you do in those countries? What'd you learn? Is, are, did you, did you and, and trust me, I've traveled with these people before, ex- people who were doing that exact thing as they were racing around the world getting stamps in their passport. And I was traveling with some of these folks in Guatemala, and they were basically taking day trips on the bus to El Salvador, to Mexico, just to go across the border, get a stamp, and come back so that they could say that they had been to that country. And it's just ridiculous. It's, it's dumb. It's wasteful. It's narcissistic, et cetera. And what I'm hoping is that we got to cut down on travel, we, and business travel especially. And I'm guilty as well. I spent six or seven years for Blurb in perpetual motion going to Europe and Canada and Australia and the U.S., et cetera. It's not that I don't want to travel, but there's got to be a good reason because we don't want to go back to that just relentless, frenetic, wasteful, I've got to be on a plane every week or I don't feel like I'm accomplishing anything. I just really hope that people slow down, travel by car, slow down, go go closer to home, learn more about where they live. How many people do I know that travel incessantly that don't know who lives next door to them? They don't know their neighborhood. They don't know the history of the own, their town that they live in. They don't know any of the local politicians. They don't know any of the local city council. They don't know anything about where they live. But they're on a plane every week, and they're telling every single person they can about how much travel they're doing. So the, the virus is a wonderful way of reassessing. And I think this is a, an opportunity. It's not a restriction. So I hope we can, we can aim down that direction. Okay. Point number five is about copycats. And I think we've all been there. I think we've all done things where um, I've certainly done it writing where I've caught myself like adapting the style of a writer that's famous that I like. And I read something and, and, and I give it time. Six months after I write it, I go back and I go, oh, God, I can't show this to anyone. This is a total ripoff. We do this from time to time. I don't remember ever doing that with a camera, although there was, I've mentioned this before in college, I was at a portfolio review and I showed my work and someone said, oh, your work looks like Antonin Critocqueville. And I was mortified because I had read an old news photographer magazine about Critocqueville escaping from Czechoslovakia in the trunk of a car. And the Harry Ransom Center at UT Austin had all the back issues of news photographer and French photo. At the time, those were like my two favorite things in the world. And I'd read this article about Critocqueville, and I really liked his work. But when someone said, your work looks like his, I wasn't happy. I was mortified. I thought, oh, my God, has he creeped into my psyche? Am I doing something on purpose that's copying him? And it really bothered me. And I don't see that happening anymore. People copy one another all the time, especially in the online space. There's no shame involved. No one even finds it questionable. They'll talk about it in public, and it's very odd. But there's been a shift. So when I was coming up, and, and up until fairly recently, and it still happens, but not as much, the, the photographers that I saw copycatted the most were Stephen Shore, William Eggleston, Adams, and um, David LaChapelle. Ryan McGinley was, was – there was a 10-year period where every single art school student was trying to be Ryan McGinley, and the, the 10 years prior to that, they were trying to be David LaChapelle. 
Um, but Eggleston and Shore and, you know, those are those were the ones that people were ripping off. And I saw it by the thousand. I mean, Shore and Eggleston, it's funny because on the surface, if you don't really know what they're doing and you don't know the concepts behind the work, you might say, you might look at it and go, oh, that's really easy. But it's not. And the fact is that Stephen Shore and William Eggleston are already, they've already been here for decades, right? If you're going to copy them, anyone who in the know in photography is going to be like, this looks exactly like whatever, you know, Eggleston or Shore. Adams is another one. Um, David LaChapelle, Ryan McGinley, et cetera. The Ryan McGinley thing was probably the single most explosive period where I literally, and I was traveling around the world to different art schools at the time. And he was the, he was the Pied Piper. Like the art school students were taking, all their friends were going out in groups and clusters and going to parties and trying to copy Ryan McGinley. Um, I was lucky. I looked at that work and said, that's not the kind of work that I want to do. And so I didn't have to try to copy those people. And it's no wonder that nobody wanted to do the kind of work that I wanted to do because there's no market for the kind of work I want to do. If you take naked pictures of your friends at parties, there's a market for that. If you're doing a long-term story about religion in Sicily, no one cares except the Sicilians and the people from that religion. So now there's been a shift. The photographer I see ripped off more than anyone else is Todd Heido. And Todd Heido is a San Francisco-based photographer. He is incredibly smart, he's incredibly good, and he's incredibly knowledgeable about photography and the history of photography, publishing, books, history of books, collecting. He is kind of a unique dude, and I don't know him very well. I've hung out with him many times at the Palm Springs Photo Festival. We've had short conversations here and there. But Todd is a world-class bookmaker, the publisher he works with a lot is uh, one of my favorite publishers of all time, and I think they are maybe the best boutique publisher in the, in the United States. But Todd has been around for a long time, and there is a method to the madness. And you can see a Todd Heido image and go, I know who did that. You can see a Todd Heido book and say, I know whose book that is from across the room because it's very distinctive. The problem is now, every, and, and the film hipsters love Todd Heido. And they never reference the fact that that's who they're ripping off, which is really funny to me. Because if you did reference it, it would work. But if you don't and you act like, and again, this goes back to what's good, their audience doesn't know Todd Heido. They do. They're not talking about it on camera because oftentimes because they don't want to admit that their work isn't original. But the problem is when... If you've spent your entire career as, and I mean that, that word very loosely, career... If you've spent your entire career or the time that you've been picking up a camera and putting work on YouTube, if you've been thinking about yourself the entire time, then it makes sense that you wouldn't necessarily know who these people are and your audience wouldn't know. But Todd Heido is a very unique dude and his work is very unique. And when you copycat that work, it's pretty obvious right away who the influence was coming from. So I think, you know, it, being influenced is natural. We're all influenced by every single thing around us, our environment, our family, our socioeconomic situation, our, the people that we find creative, our inspiration. I find my ideas come to me when I'm riding a bicycle or driving a car. I love reading. I'm reading a, a Thoreau book right now. Um, I would not say that he is an, a writer that's influenced my writing style, but I do like his books. I'm sitting in front of a stack of photography books from people who have definitely influenced me over the years. But again, it's not, it's, there's a huge difference between acknowledging an influence and copying someone and trying to take that credit for that work on your own, which is what I see happening now all the time. So anyway, let's talk. I had a funny phone conversation earlier today that I wanted to throw out here. And the, the bulk of it was this one line, quote, oh my God, comma, is that nature? I was on the phone with someone earlier who lives in the city and I was sitting out on the patio, and it sounds like Wild Kingdom here, right? There's, it's, it's, and the person on the phone was so freaked out that she could hear, quote, nature, that she just kept bringing it up. Oh, my God, I can't believe that's nature. And I made a quick list while she was talking. Chicken, turkeys, wild turkeys, coyotes, finches, dogs, planes, cars, voices, machinery, horses, and just the general hum of, of our lives was you could hear all at the time that we were talking. So I just thought that was really funny. And it goes back to the point I made a couple, uh, last week about that book, book I was reading, The Nature Fix, where 2008 was the first year that um, humans were, became city dwellers as opposed to agrarian or country dwellers. And I think uh, our detachment from nature is almost complete. And I thought this was really funny. Okay, number, next point is number seven, is I ran into a hydrologist here in New Mexico, and she's been a professional hydrologist for 30 years, as is her husband— 
And we, I just met her on the street riding my bike. We had this very quick conversation. We're going to try to hook up here in the near future. And uh, I said to her, I almost became a geologist with a, with a specialty in hydrology because I was going to go to a school in Texas and study geology, blah, blah, blah. I had a shooting scholarship, shotguns, not cameras. And then, uh, long story short, they lost my admission records. I did go to a community college for a semester. I found photography. I never went back. And so I said to her, hey, I almost became, potentially became a hydrologist myself. I was going to be a geologist with a specialization in water, right? This was all the way back in the in the early, late 80s, early 90s. So I already knew at that time how precious water was. And I think that became because of spending um, four months a year on a ranch in Wyoming and irrigating fields from creeks that were coming out of the mountains. You know, every day I had to break the beaver dam. Then I had to go use these ancient pipes where you had to like siphon water up over these humps and, and irrigate the, the fields. And so you realize the scarcity of water and the, what a good snow melt does or snowpack does compared to a bad year, et cetera, et cetera. And this hydrologist says to me, quote, nobody cares and nobody's talking about it. We have a 2.4 million cubic foot deficit in New Mexico right now. Nobody cares. Nobody's talking about it. And it just is staggering to me. Now, there's another little caveat to this. So if you don't know who T. Boone Pickens is, T. Boone Pickens is an easy, I don't know if he's from Texas or Oklahoma, but he was an oilman forever. He, he had oil, super made a fortune in the oil business, but also is very keen to acquire water rights and has been for decades. And Michael Burry, who was the doctor in San Francisco or Silicon Valley that predicted the financial collapse in 08, his entire uh, investment portfolio apparently right now is uh, deals with water. And I think that this is something... That is so incredibly important, but the rub is that we've all talked about this before. We've talked about it many times. You can't get away from this story, but yet at the same time, we don't seem to care. And when you live in a place like New Mexico, everybody here knows about water, and we know how precious it is, but at the same time, all kinds of craziness is happening behind the scenes, and I'm just curious what it's like in your world because I did a quick search earlier about water uh, crisis level water, right? The West had a 10-year drought that we sort of came out of briefly about 18 months ago. Uh, California obviously had the big fires. They, the drought conditions out there are going to be bad. But I started looking at, at drought condition areas, and you'd be surprised. Um, Oregon was one that popped up that was pretty interesting. And also in the Minnesota area along the border in the Boundary Waters area, which is crazy because it's lakes and rivers, and you think, ah, oh, there's endless amounts of water here. There isn't. And man, is it going to get funky because we might have fought wars over oil in the past, but the war over water is probably going to be in the near future. Okay, point number eight. There's one feature that I just want to talk about very briefly, which is in Blurb's BookWrite software. That's the free software that if you're going to make a book book with Blurb or a magazine with Blurb, that's what you can use. You can use an InDesign plugin. You can use Lightroom, et cetera. But BookWrite is sort of the main course, right? It's free. works really well. There's a little button in that software if you don't know about. It's very handy. Even if you're not going to make a book, it's worth importing your images and using this. It's called Manage Pages. And this allows you to see your entire book all the spreads on one screen and drag and drop them into different order. So it allows you to sequence your entire layout of the book. I use it all the time. I've never, I, since they've added that feature, I've not made a book without using it. It's incredible. I used it in Albania last year, every single day as I was going in real time, I would sit with Elena who was teaching the workshop and we would drag and drop pages to sort of try to solidify my sequence. If you don't know about that button, even, again, even if you're not going to print something, Download the software, import your images, and start laying out your designs, and it will be incredibly helpful. I guarantee it. Okay, point number nine is I, I found someone on YouTube I love, and I'm, I'm not tearing up. I'm taking a drink of tea. It's matcha, by the way, in case you're wondering what kind of tea I'm drinking. Okay, I, I found this guy on YouTube. I love him. He's Canadian, which means he's better than us, and I have not, I've never met a Canadian I don't like. They're they're warm and soft and fuzzy. Now, in his particular case, he's very, he's very shtaka. He's very stout, thick, robust, uh, like a Canadian, you would think, someone who spends time in the woods. He doesn't mess around. You could probably like, he could probably break two by fours just by, with his hands. And I love Canada. I've been to Canada a million times. I've always loved it. Even the airport customs guy who wanted to turn me around and put me back on the plane because um, he wouldn't let me in with my camera gear, and the client that I was shooting for drove to the airport, read in the riot act, and he and then he caved and let me in. I still like that guy. I still like Canadian customs people. 
even though they've been, I've had two or three really close calls, and I've I've been treated, I would say, questionably by them. There was a, quite a bit of anti-Americanism coming, but I'm going to throw that aside because I love Canada. If I could figure out a way to become a dual citizen and live in Canada, I would do so. I'm not joking. I love it there. I've been all across. I've been from the Northwest Territories. I've been through the Yukon. I've been all across the big cities from Vancouver to Montreal and Toronto and Calgary and, and uh, not Calgary, the, uh, what am I thinking about? Uh, anyway, I've been all over. I love it. Ottawa, great city. So, there's a guy named Jim Baird, B-A-I-R-D, comma, adventurer. And Jim Baird, is an, he's clearly an adventurer. It says right on his YouTube channel. No, he's this guy that seems super down-to-earth, very nice, very cool. And he does these expeditions up in the northern parts of Canada. So he'll go down the Porcupine River in Saskatchewan for two weeks with his wife and his dog in a canoe. And they're running rapids. They're lining rapids. They're portaging they're cooking outside. You know, he's kind of giving tips. One day he catches a nice pike and then he builds a fire with a little tent over it and smokes it for an overnight. And uh, it's the kind of stuff that I used to do is when my father and I, when I was, my father was alive and I was younger, we would always fly up to the, to Canada every year to fish, namely in Manitoba, but we would go up to the territories as well. And it was just a highlight in my life. That territory up there is remarkable. It is, it is one of my all time favorite places on the planet. It's ticky. It's buggy as hell, and that's the one downside, and the weather's completely unpredictable, but the water, the fishing, the landscape, the eagles, the bears, everything, it, I just absolutely love it. So I found this guy on YouTube, and did I mention he's Canadian? He is Canadian, and he's super cool, and so is Canada, and I love you, Canada, and if I could get up there and live there, I would, but I'm probably too old, and I probably can't prove that I could get a job, even though I think I could, and I I think I would make Canada a better place. I really do. But anyway, this guy, Jim Baird Adventure, check him out. He does uh, really wonderful things. His films are very basic. There's not a whole lot of like over-editing. Um, he's probably got more footage than all of us could ever archive for the rest of our lives. But I loved him. And if and if I love these, these trips, it reminded me of my childhood. It made me want to get in the van and drive to Saskatchewan, get in a float plane and go uh, spend some time out in the tundra. So anyway, I thought I would, uh, I would tell you about him. Okay, books in general. So I have a, I read this book last week, which I think I mentioned called My Salinger Year. I thought it was a really fun book to read. It's worth your time to read it. It's about, J, it's about a woman who works in, the, in a literary agency in New York that happens to represent J.D. Salinger, who wrote, among other things, Catcher in the Rye. And he has a level of fame that's not normal with authors, right? And so it got me thinking like, oh, I don't know what it is, but the publishing world is so broken in so many ways, and so awful in so many ways, but yet it's so alluring at the same time. And when you're reading about this literary office in 1996 that has no computers, no emails, they're using a dictaphone and typewriters, I don't look at that and go, oh, they're antiquated. I look at that with lust as to, oh my God, how much would I love having that now? And it also got me thinking about authors. I'd never met J.D. Salinger, um, but I've had close calls with other authors, and that's what I wanted to talk about here. I've never spoken to Cormac McCarthy, but I've stood within touching distance of him, which is pretty great, because if you're as a big a fan as Cormac McCarthy as I am, he spent some time here in Santa Fe, apparently, because that's where I saw him, and uh, I was standing in, the, in an auditorium on the stairs, and a guy walked up next to me, very close to me, and I casually looked, because I thought, he's inside my perimeter, maybe he's going to try to touch my leg in the dark. Maybe not. But anyway, I looked over and I was thought to myself, that kind of looks like Cormac McCarthy. And then I realized that is Cormac McCarthy. I absolutely love him as an author. I think in my top 10 list, I always have Blood Meridian. I think in that whole series on the border, the border trilogy, all the pretty horses and um, uh, cities of the plain. I think that is one of the greatest literary things I've ever read in my life. I reread Blood Meridian all the time. If you don't know Cormac McCarthy, he is wonderful. You can also watch his films, No Country for Old Men, etc. The Road. So, but I've also had other close calls with authors. I walked out of my post office box in Beverly Hills back in the 90s, and I looked at the park car in front of me. There was someone leaning against the parking meter. And I looked, and I thought, that looks a lot like Salman Rushdie. But I thought, that can't be Salman Rushdie, because there's a jihad on him, and he would never come out in public. And then I walked over, and I looked, and I'm like, that is Salman Rushdie. So I was like, what the hell? I walked up. I said, hey. 
And he turned and looked at me and immediately extended his hand and said, how you doing? And we shook hands and I said, you know, I can't believe you're here. Now he was with an incredible looking woman. Don't know who she was. Still don't, never asked, not my business. But he looked at me and this was not a, how do I get away from this fan as fast as possible? This was an endearing you and I are going to have a conversation for a minute. It might only be 30 seconds or 60 seconds, but I'm going to give you my attention. And I felt like I was, I know I was having a conversation with Salman Rushdie. And I said, there's something peculiar about your work. You are one of the few authors that I've ever read that I said, your brain works differently than mine, that I could never conceive of writing anything quite like what you write on a regular basis. And he laughed and he said, I write multiple books at the same time, and I write them back to front. And I thought, wow, that's, that explains it, right? And that was our moment, and he left, and I never saw him again. But it gets better. A couple years later, one of the libraries in Southern California had a distinguished speaker series, and a friend of mine was, was the one who ran it, and she managed to land Christopher Hitchens. So I would go from time to time when the author Seymour Hirsch came and I photographed him and hung out a little bit with him. He was not, he wanted no part of me, um, not super friendly. But Hitchin shows up and I'm shooting him with an old Polaroid camera. And he's kind of intrigued by the old Polaroid and I'm pulling these Polaroids and he's able to look at him and we're talking. And he says to me and my friend at the library, um, hey, we're going out to get drinks and dinner. You want to go? And I'm like, uh, Sure. So I don't know at this point that Salman Rushdie and Christopher Hitchens were best friends. Like they're buddies. They hung out all the time. So we sit down to have dinner with Christopher Hitchens and we're drinking and we're not talking. I'm not dicking around here. We're, he's not either. When I say we're drinking, we're like, we're, we're putting, this is the Indy 500 of alcohol. We are just pounding and, and he's smoking too. And we're eating like meat. So red meat, you know, our heart, our bodies are in, are in full revolt. I realized very quickly that there's no way I can keep up with him in terms of the booze. And so we're, we have dinner and we're talking and I mentioned seeing Salman Rushdie and he's like, you're kidding me. That's, he's a good friend of mine and we, you know, hang out. And so he explains their whole background and history together. And I'm like, wow, this is so, uh, so interesting. And then we talk, we start talking about projects and stories. And so I'm talking to Christopher Hitchens about doing projects and stories. And I kid you not, he looks at his buddy who he's with, who I don't remember who that person is. Very nice. Again, we're all, there's like five of us total at this dinner. And he says, he says to his friend, he points at me and he goes, I'd like to do a project with him at some point. And I was like, and I'm thinking, am I hammered? Did I just make that up in my head with the, the devil that's on my shoulder is now feeding me fake lines from Christopher Hitchens? Or did that actually happen? And yes, it actually happened because I have independent verification from my friend who was like, wow, he, you know, he said he wanted to do a project with you. Obviously, it didn't happen. He's passed away. Uh, the odds of that ever happening. But those are my sort of brushes with authors. I probably have more, but those are the ones that jumped out at me today. So I thought I would mention those. I love the literary world. I don't care how screwed up it is. I love the publishing world. I don't care how screwed up it is. They put books into the world. And books, as you know, for me, are one of life's most incredible things. Okay. So let's talk point number 11, talking to my buddy the other day, Rick, the director of Beyond, and also the senior co-editor at AG23. We're scheming on all kinds of AG23 things and working on issue two and fulfillment of issue one. And there's a million other things going on as normal. Uh, but he asked me a question. He said, "What? who was the one? Meaning, who was the photographer that really did it for you? Who was the one? And I was like, oh, that's a good question. But there isn't just one. I could probably narrow it to two. But I've put four, no, one, two, three. yeah, I've listed four, but all for different reasons. And I could put five in here now that I think about it. But that's a damn good question. Who's the one that ruined everything for you? Meaning, who's the one that turned your life towards photography in a wickedly uh, addictive way? And the first one to me was Larry Burroughs, was the English photographer who covered Vietnam, who did this image on a hilltop landing zone of a, a one Marine on the ground who was wounded, who was a Caucasian Marine, if I remember correctly, and then a black Marine who was standing up and running towards this other guy to embrace him. And I had never seen an image like that. I'd never felt that way from a photograph before. And I said to myself, I want to make other people feel that way. So Larry Burroughs was the one that's, that showed me the power of what a photo photograph could do. But then immediately, 
I would say the Magnum aesthetic, that agency in general, I learned about Kappa and, you know, Cartier-Bresson and all these people that started Chim Seymour and the people that started Magnum. But the two that jumped out at me, the two documentary photographers that I said, oh my God, these are the two best people I've seen are Sebastian Salgado and W. Gene Smith. Those were the ones, I think Smith was the best documentary photographer to ever live, especially when you consider what the conditions he worked under, the equipment he had, et cetera. I think Salgado is the modern version of Gene Smith. Um, but there were two women as well. Susan Mizellis, who's a Magnum photographer who had worked in Nicaragua during the war. Um, I think she was maybe the only woman that covered that war in Nicaragua. That's a remarkable book. In my first semester um, at UT Austin, she came and gave a lecture that I went to, and she showed a film called Pictures from a Revolution, which I'm sure you can still find. I was enamored by her. I was like, holy cow, I want to be her. She's incredible. She's intelligent. She speaks Spanish. She's dedicated. She's with Magnum. I was like, she's my hero. I've run into her a few times over the years. I also sent her a portfolio when I first got started, and she actually responded to it, wrote me a letter, remembered it years later. She's a quality person. All of her projects are remarkable. The Carnival Strippers, she did a big book on Kurdistan, on the Kurds in general. Um, but the wars of the 80s, those were the Latin American wars that really I was watching and following every single day. Um, and then Maggie Stieber, who also taught at my first semester at UT Austin, although the school would not let me take that class for some reason. It was almost like they were penalizing me for no reason. But Maggie's work in Haiti was also very instrumental. But those are the ones that really like sort of came up behind me, kicked me in the ass and got me moving towards photography. Okay. I want to give one talk about, uh, no, it's, we're going to end with this point. This is point 12, and this is something that's been happening for quite some time. And I would be really curious if anybody's listening to this, if this has happened to you, write in because it is hitting epidemic levels. And it's, it, this really, really bothers me because I, where I grew up and I love being in the outdoors, and this is a problem. And what I'm talking about is the theft of public land from wealthy landowners, primarily wealthy Caucasian people who have decided that the rules of society, uh, land, public land, private land, you know, the rivers, lakes, et cetera, um, are theirs. And so what happens is they go in, they'll buy a piece of property on a lake, they'll buy a piece of property on a river, they'll buy something in the mountains, they put up gates, they put up security, they immediately try to keep everyone else out. This happens on beaches as well. And they basically claim that the lake, the river, the beach, the ocean is theirs. And the problem is, it's no problem for somebody to claim that. I mean, you can, you can, and this is happening, if you go on YouTube and you just type in any of these search words, you'll see guys fishing in marinas all over the world, and the marina security shows up and says, we own the lake, and you can't fish here. It happens on rivers all the time. Uh, especially in places like Texas, ranchers are putting uh, fences across rivers in West Texas and claiming that they own the riverbed, which is not true. They don't. If it's a navigable water source, they do not own it. It's If it's less than 30 feet, then it's it's arguable. And also, you have something happening where navigable waters are ending up in courts, ending up in legal arguments that are, quote, based on opinion and not law. But just think about that for a second. So, Let's say that you're on a river in Texas and it's 50 feet wide and you're in a kayak and you're going up and the landowner comes out and says, you can't be on that river. It's mine. I own it because I own the property. Well, that's not true. But what's happened is these people are wealthy enough to pay off just about everyone. They can pay off the game wardens. They can pay off the city council people. They can get laws passed. They can get laws changed. It's happening all over the country. It's probably happening all over the world, but it's rampant now in the US. And so what's happening is that these people are, are determining things based on opinion and not law. So for example, they'll say, well, you know, back in 2002, uh, this was brought to court and the general opinion was that, and then it gets completely gray. And the landowner's like, oh, it's mine, it's mine, it's mine. And they're, and they're trying to keep everyone out. This happened in California with a tech douche from somewhere up north who bought a house on a beach and tried to make it from a public beach to a private. He put up fences. He hired security. If you went to the beach, they'd show up and say, you're going to get fined and you're going to get arrested and security. And that's not true. But the problem is when you have that kind of money, you can, you can sway this. And what's happening is our public lands are being sold off at such a rapid rate. And again, here's the shift. Most of us live in cities now, right? And a lot of people's only engagement with nature is Instagram. 
So they don't know. They're never going to leave the couch in West LA. They're going to just look at Joshua Tree on Instagram for 12 hours a day, but they might never drive out there. And so they don't know. They don't know that this is happening. Trump has made it a thousand times worse because, remember, let's go back to 2016. Who was the first Secretary of the Interior? Ryan Zinke. How many illegal investigations or how many investigations into illegal activity forced Zinke out? And who did he replace him with? Scott Pruitt, who had so many more criminal investigations against him than anyone, I think, in the history of that position. And Trump had to go to him and say, dude, you're taking too much heat. You got to go. If Trump is telling you you have to leave, you know how bad it is. And so these guys are sell, drill, profit. That's what they want. Sell, drill, profit everywhere. Trump's never been in the wild in his life. He never will. He's a city guy. Most of the politicians are city people. They're never going to know about these places. They don't know. It might as well be Mars. But it bothers me because when you go, like all of the good, or not all of it, but most of the best fishing left in America, like trout fishing, is on private land. So to get access, you have to pay, you have to go through a guide, you have to do whatever. It's very hard to find world-class water that isn't privately owned, and it sucks. And so like, it, it's a, this is a, a, an incredibly bothersome thing, thing to me, where, again, we know now beyond the shadow of a doubt the corruption level in America is endemic. It's in every single level. And this is just another example of like, hey, you can't be here. You can't fish here. You can't be on the lake. You can't be on the river. This has happened to me multiple times in the last decade. It's getting more and more frequent, and it rubs me the wrong way. This is wrong. It's illegal, and we've got to do something as a collective to stop it because before long, you're going to go out to be, quote, in the wild, and you're not going to be able to because everything is going to be parted out and sold. It's happening here in New Mexico like crazy. And um, it's a bummer. I'm just glad I was born when I was and when I was able to get out to places. Um, I know places in Wyoming that I used to go that are now off limits. I know places here that are off limits. I know Texas uh, places in Texas that are off limits. And they're off limits because wealthy owners came in and said, we're going to make this off limits. And everybody's like, oh, well, you know, we don't really have time to fight this. The game people don't really care. And so it's a bummer. So anyway, I don't want to end on a bummer. So I got to think about something something positive that I can end on. Let me look around here. I burn white sage every morning, and um, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that none of you do that. But I absolutely love the smell of white sage. So I'm sitting here. What day is it? Is it Wednesday or Tuesday? God, I've got so many phone calls lined up this afternoon. I don't even know. I legitimately don't know what day of the week it is. I have six films I'm on the hook for this week that I have to get out. And next week is looking just as crazy. But I took time to do this podcast because I love doing it and it's easy. And these are topics that I hope people are talking about. And again, I'm one person. It's my opinion. That's nothing more. I could be right. I could be wrong. It doesn't matter. Form your own. Get out there and live.